So this first story was written by me, and I wrote it um, around the time, a couple weeks back, that I was dealing with a lot of tooth pain. Um, my tooth pain has now subsided. However, it was the inspiration for this story. So with that said, um, this story is body horror. It deals specifically with teeth and the mouth. There is some vomit involved. If any of that is unsettling to you or something that you're not really keen on listening to, skip this story because it's nasty. I'm actually disappointed in myself for how gross this story is. Um, I know some people don't really like body horror things. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I didn't want to pass up on this story. But I just wanted to give you all a warning. It gets pretty gross towards the end. Um, if you stick around for it, let me know what you think about it at the end of the video down in the comments. But if you're not here for it, just skip to the, the, the second story. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Ever since my mom passed away over 15 years ago, it's just been me and my dad. Sure, he'd tried to date a few years after, but he could never make it more than two or three dates before calling off any more contact with anyone. I think it was a combination of a few things. My mom was his soulmate through and through, and having that person taken from you, that's a wound that never really heals. On top of that, it was cancer that did her in. Anyone who's experienced cancer themselves or watched someone go through it knows it takes a mental toll on someone. It stays with you. I was only six at the time, so I couldn't quite grasp the full emotions of it, but in some deep part of my brain, I think I understood. My dad and I were going to be spending a lot more time together. We had a strange relationship. He wasn't a bad father. He'd just never really had to fill that role before, with him working most of the time and mom staying home, and she handled the brunt of it. She did the cooking, the cleaning, the disciplining, so when she was gone, all of that fell to my dad. He was able to get his schedule reworked rather quickly, to his credit, and after a few years, he was starting to get the hang of it. He learned not to leave the crust on my sandwiches. He was better about picking out clothes for me that actually fit and matched. He even started hosting sleepovers for my friends and I. He was killing it. The only thing he was relaxed on was hygiene. Specifically, dental hygiene. You see, Dad had dentures. And my mom, while she didn't have perfect teeth, she took care of them and tried to instill in me the habit of brushing at least once a day. The habit stayed with me until I was around 16. I'd keep up with it, until one day I was running late for school and opted to swish mouthwash instead of fully brush my teeth. No one noticed at school, and that night after dinner when my dad said, don't forget to brush before bed, I told myself I would. But I was tired and a little stressed about an upcoming test, so I just swished again and went to bed. This one-off thing quickly evolved into a bad habit. Throughout the rest of high school, which was about two more years, a toothbrush never entered my mouth. My habit of swishing mouthwash had even gone the way of the dodo, and I found myself just chewing minty gum to stave off the unsightly smell of my morning breath. Once I moved out for college and moved into my own apartment, I bought a new toothbrush, fully intending on using it, but it ended up being more than a decoration than anything. 
My campus was pretty small, so I was worried I'd have to suck it up and finally start brushing again if I had any intention on meeting new friends. But then, like some strange divine intervention, the pandemic hit, and my school switched to all online classes. That was when my non-brushing turned into something much worse. My diet drastically changed as well. I was out of work from my campus job, so money was incredibly tight. I switched out many of my dinners with ramen noodles, and most of the time breakfast was just toast, with peanut butter if I was lucky. Around this time, I found myself feeling less than satisfied, but it was a hole that what I was eating couldn't fill. I wanted something sweet. It started with a simple peanut butter cup that evolved into a candy bar two candy bars, and before I knew it, I was dumping armfuls of candy on the counter of the corner store. At one point, the guy at the front looked at me and said, You know Halloween ain't for a few more months, right? This candy ain't going nowhere. I just tossed him some cash and left. This had been going on for about three months, and I was finding myself, again, not being satisfied with the amount of sugar I was putting into my body. It was also around this time I picked up on the dull pain that would persist for a few hours after my candy binges. Still, though, I refused to brush my teeth. I can't really explain why. Maybe it was a competition with me. Maybe I really wanted to see how long I could go without doing it before something bad happened. Of course, I couldn't prepare myself for how bad that thing would actually be. My trips to the corner store weren't daily anymore. They'd turned into hourly visits. It was on one of these hourly visits, around 3 in the morning, that I saw something new on the shelves of the crowded aisles of the store. I was pretty sure I'd tried every sugar-filled drink and snack at that point, but this one, with its neon green and fuchsia packaging, there's no way I'd missed it. I picked it up and gave it a once-over. It was called Gooey Lumpies. Stupid name, I thought, but the package had something that made me instantly take it to the counter. Experience a taste sensation like no other. This was followed by art of a young kid's head literally exploding. Brain matter and blood, though cartoony, shot out in every direction. I didn't see a price listed on the shelf, so I took it up to the cashier. He looked just as confused as I was, if not more. Where'd you get that? I looked at him puzzled. I got it off the aisle right here, but there wasn't a price on it, so I thought you could tell me. He took it from my hand and studied the wrapping closely, looking for anything that would indicate a price. Eventually, he tossed it back to me, saying, There's no barcode, so I can't scan it for you. Look, just take it with you. I'll probably have to get in touch with the manufacturer and tell them we got a bad batch, but since you spend more money here than anyone else, I'll let you have it. On the house. I laughed and excitedly took the candy bar from him before rushing out of the door to my apartment. Back home, I ripped open the package and was greeted to a bar similar to shape and size of a singular Twix. Breaking it in half, I was greeted with a thin layer of nougat, though it was much darker than the other times I'd seen it, and strange marshmallow-like fluff filling the rest of the bar. I say strange because it wasn't white like marshmallow. It was a very pale yellow. This paired with the darkened nougat gave me pause, I'll admit, but 
Still, after weighing my options, I threw it down my gullet without much of a second thought. To describe the taste would be like telling you a fairy tale. You simply wouldn't believe it. In the simplest terms, the bar was equally smooth and rich as it was crunchy and flaky. The chocolate gave a Hershey Kiss kind of taste, but it was complemented on the back end by a slight hint of citrus. If I would have dropped dead at that moment from a heart attack, I would have died a happy man. I wanted more. I, I needed more. Looking at the clock on my microwave, I saw the corner store was likely closed. I didn't think twice about what I did next. I went back up to the corner store, snuck around back, and began looking through the garbage bins. Among the bags filled with receipts, empty containers, and wet paper towels, I found one smaller bag tucked away in a far corner. It was black and had been tied at the handles. Fighting not to fall deeper into the garbage, I crawled over and grabbed it and pulled it to my chest. Ripping it open, my face lit up. The entire bag was filled with gooey lumpies. Without taking even a second thought about what I was about to do, I tore open the first candy bar and like a filthy animal shoved the entire thing in my mouth. It was pure ecstasy, tasting that chocolate and nougat and marshmallow again. I'd had many bars with the same ingredients, but this one was something different. There must have been 20 or 30 in that bag and I ate them all. One after the other, I nearly forgot to chew I was eating so fast. Once the bag was finished, I passed out. Hey! A loud voice reverberated off the walls of the dumpster and shook me awake. What the hell are you doing? You eating shit in there or something? Looking out of the small opening, I saw the cashier I'd seen the night before. He wore an angry face until I made eye contact with him. Then his face dropped to one of anxiousness and fear. His voice was much lower now when he said, Look, man, you just gotta get out of here. I won't call the cops or nothing, just leave. I simply nodded and slowly made my way out of the dumpster, nearly falling on my way out. Walking back home, I felt sore, weak, my head was pounding. I'd assumed the headache came from the massive quantity of sugar I consumed, but when I saw myself in the bathroom mirror, I found the real reason. My bottom jaw was swollen on the left side. It looked like a water balloon that had been filled to the point of bursting. It was bright red and warm and painful to the touch. Looking closer, I was almost certain I could see it moving with my pulse. In an attempt to figure out what was going on, I opened my mouth wide, the swollen part of my jaw protesting by sending shots of pain through my whole body, but I managed to hold it open long enough to see it my back left molar had broken in half. Where there was once a tooth was now just an empty space, allowing me to see the inner parts of a tooth no one would usually see. It was dark, nearly black, and the brig didn't look clean either. It had to have happened last night. Given my diet lately, I can only assume I'd managed to develop a cavity, and the hard nougat may have done the tooth in. Closing my mouth and wiping away the drool that had escaped, I knew I had no choice but to go to the dentist. Maybe the emergency room. I dug through my pockets for my phone, but I came up empty. It was most likely in the bottom of that dumpster and halfway to the dump at this point. 
With no other option, I printed off directions to the nearest dentist and hopped in my car. Every single bump and pothole that I hit sent an entirely new wave of pain through my jaw. By the time I was at the front desk of the dentist's office, I was nearly in tears. The receptionist looked on in fear as I tried my best to explain my situation, but just moving my mouth sent more and more waves of pain. She held her hand up to me and said, Just a moment, sir. We'll get someone to help you. Grabbing the phone on her desk, she called for immediate help in the waiting room. Within minutes, a man stepped out from the back, took one look at me and said, Sir, please come with me. I would have went with anyone had they promised to stop the pain. The dentist took me to a room far in the back and sat me in a chair to get ready to help me in record time. His assistant pulled up only seconds later. Sir, he said, we're going to give you something to help with the pain. It'll also help you calm down. I saw the assistant pulling out an oxygen mask. Are you allergic to anything? Been on any hard drugs lately? I shook my head to both. Okay, he put the mask over me. Just relax. You're going to be okay. That was the last thing I heard before I passed out for the second time in 24 hours. When I woke up, the only other person in the room was the dentist's assistant. He looked from his clipboard and said, Welcome back, sir. How are you feeling? All I could do was nod my head. He smiled and gave me a small laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty common. Can you understand me okay? I nodded again. Okay, so what we did was give you a temporary crown to fill that broken tooth. This will keep it from developing any other infection while you fight off the current one. The swelling in your jaw was brought on by a large cyst that developed on your outer gum on account of the broken tooth and damaged gum around it. That was drained and you were given stitches that will dissolve in a few days. About a week or two from now, depending on how long it takes for the rest of the swelling to subside, we'll get you back in here and give you a permanent filling. I nodded along as he talked, kicking myself for getting into the situation in the first place. All of this over a fucking candy bar, I thought. They let me regain my focus for another hour in the waiting room, before coming out to say that I would be safe to drive home. The anesthetic would have worn off by then, and while I'd be in pain, I wouldn't be at risk behind the wheel of a car. I thanked them, nearly went into debt over the bill because America, and drove home, falling into bed, and sleeping for the next nine hours. That was last week. This morning, I woke up to an all-familiar pain in my jaw. It was so jarring, I threw myself to the floor trying to get out of the bed and into the bathroom. Opening my mouth to the mirror, I saw small white flakes dotting my tongue. I closed my mouth and pulled together saliva, hoping to spit it out in the sink, but as I did, I felt a small pop. I froze. I think some part of me knew what it was. Spitting it into the sink, I saw the white flakes, but a much larger one bounced around for a moment before settling on the edge of the drain. It was bright white and vaguely tooth-shaped. Looking into my mouth again, I confirmed my worst fear. The temporary filling had popped from my damaged tooth. 
I didn't even know that was possible, but there it was, sitting in my sink threatening to go down the drain. I rushed back to my bedroom to grab the new phone I'd had to finance because of the dentist cost, with plans on calling him and reporting my problem. I made it halfway down the hall before I fell to the floor. A new shot of pain traveled through my gums, into my neck, and throughout my entire body. It was crippling. I screamed out, but continued to slowly crawl toward my bedroom, hoping to reach the nightstand before another shot of pain crippled me. The pain continued, though it dulled as the seconds passed, and just as I made it to my feet, I felt it. Another small pop from the same tooth that had the filling. The pain subsided, and I thought for a moment I was simply being dramatic until... I felt something moving over my tongue. The feeling was so unnatural and strange, my body revolted, and I vomited on the floor at my feet. Pain was returning now as well, and I knew I needed to make the call, but something told me I needed to look at the vomit, that there was something very wrong with what was happening. My first thought was that it was some kind of infection, maybe brought on by the large cyst the dentist had popped. Perhaps they didn't clean things as well as they thought they did. But looking through the bile on the floor, littered with bits of pepperoni, pizza crust, pudding, and almond milk, I saw it. In the light, orange-brown bile was a fat little worm. It writhed in the stomach acid, its little feet kicking, begging to find traction and escape its slow death. I bolted to the bathroom to vomit again, this time making it into the sink. More orange-brown liquid spewed from my mouth, but luckily this time there was nothing out of the ordinary. I caught my breath, washed the vomit down the sink, and it seemed, at last, the upchucking was over with. I still need to make the call, though. I'd worry about cleaning up later, and... There it was again. That familiar pain shooting through my gum and down my neck, making its way through every part of my body. In tears now, I slowly opened my mouth to inspect the broken tooth. The dark spot looked much deeper now, and even my gum had begun turning a dull gray. But that wasn't the part that scared me. What scared me was the small face of another worm, slowly making its way out of my gums. When our cat Murphy died, my daughter Rebecca was inconsolable. She wanted a replacement, but I wanted that fancy set of leather sofas I'd been oogling for years without the risk of them being torn to shreds by an unruly set of claws. I needed to find a way to distract Rebecca without resorting to buying a Murphy 2.0. It was while watching a home renovation show one afternoon that I came up with the perfect solution, remodeling her room. Becca, honey, why don't we give you your bedroom a makeover? The instant smile that appeared on her face told me I'd done the right thing. Yes, she squealed, throwing her arms in the air. I let her choose the theme and colors. As long as the end result made her happy, it didn't matter, even if it looked ridiculous and lowered my property value. Rooms could always be repainted. Rebecca, having the foresight and attention span of an eight-year-old, picked the flavor of the month. Fairies. She'd been watching the same blonde-haired, green-dress-wearing fairy movie for weeks, sometimes twice in one day. 
I do the lyrics and dialogue by heart at this point, but I digress. The point is, she wanted her room to become a fairy paradise, and I obliged. I spent the next few weeks remodeling the bedroom, painted the ceiling and the top half of her walls blue, the bottom half green, and asked a family friend to paint trees, flowers, rocks, bushes, whatever it took to make it look like a forest. A few fairy and sparkly decals later, and it became an enchanted forest. I took Rebecca to a used furniture store and let her pick out a few pieces, then repainted them pink. The transformation was almost complete once I got her a much-needed new bedspread, but something was missing. The room needed that one last wow factor. That weekend, I went to a craft show and found exactly what I needed. At the back end of a woodworker's booth, hidden behind a set of coat racks and umbrella holders, was an ornate wooden door that measured about six inches tall and three inches wide. It had adorable little hinges, a tiny handle, and a beautiful Celtic knot decorating its surface. What's that? I asked an older woman sitting behind the desk. She turned to me and said, That's a fairy door, love, she said with an Irish accent. You put it in your garden and nail it to a tree to invite the fae folk. They'll take care of your plants and bring life and beauty to them. I took the object excitedly. The fairy door was exactly what was missing from Rebecca's room, the wow factor I'd been looking for. Maybe I'd sneak in one night while she slept and stuff one of her pixie dolls behind it so she'd think it was magic. It's perfect for my daughter's room. The woman made a few tutting sounds with her tongue and shook her head. Oh no, love. You wouldn't want to do that. Why not? She replied. Fay folk are fickle little things. They like playing tricks they don't like tricks being played on them. If you invite a fairy into our world, it's best not to anger it. They need to be outdoors, with the flowers. I laughed. <laughs> Duly noted. How much is it? She opened a red duo tang on her desk and then flipped through the pages until she found a picture of the fairy door. Her finger traced along a list of specs until she found the price. Thirty dollars. But if you buy anything else, I'll give you a discount. $30 seemed a little steep, but it was a nice handcrafted piece of art. One that I knew my daughter would enjoy. A piece that would really complete the look, so to speak. Sold, I said. I pulled out my wallet, shout out the money. She took the fairy door, enveloped it securely in a few layers of wrapping paper, dropped it in the bag, and handed it to me. Enjoy, she replied. As soon as I got home, I grabbed the toolbox and made a beeline for my daughter's bedroom. After trying out a few spots, I finally settled on nailing the door to the bottom of one of the larger painted trees. Perfect, I thought, as I looked at the finished result. Rebecca's room was a masterpiece. Rebecca was elated when she finally saw what had become of her room. She'd been sleeping on the sofa in the basement while I'd been working on making her dream a reality. The excitement of it all kept her up particularly late that night, but when she finally went to bed, she was completely tuckered out. Everything was normal for a few days, and Murphy became a thing of the past. One morning, as she was eating her cereal, Rebecca smiled broadly and said, I saw a fairy last night. I snorted. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. She's not very pretty, she answered. 
That's not nice to say, Becca. It's true. I turned away, rolled my eyes, and poured myself a cup of coffee. Everyone is beautiful in their own way, I said. I think she's hungry, replied Rebecca. Well, we should feed her then. Rebecca jumped off her seat. <laughs> okay. Whoa, there, kid. Finish your breakfast. The fairy friend can wait, I said, pointing to her bowl. She wolfed down her meal and threw her arms up. Done, she said victoriously. I put my cup of coffee down and shrugged. I had to think of what to feed her imaginary fairy friend. The last thing I wanted to do was attract bugs, so I steered clear of using anything sweet. Bread would get moldy, salt was too risky, if she knocked it over it could make a mess, water wouldn't be special enough. Then I remembered I still had a bag of cat food in the cupboard. It poured into a colorful kitty bowl and handed it to Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca, get this to your fairy friend. Be careful not to spill it. Rebecca smiled. Thank you. Her little feet pitter-pattered as she ran to her room, sending pieces of cat food flying out of the bowl. Clean up on aisle everywhere. I didn't anticipate what I'd find the next morning when I went to wake my daughter up. The sight of it made my stomach twist in disgust. The bowl of cat food was empty. How was I supposed to know she'd eat it? I flip-flopped between being grossed out that my daughter had eaten a bowl of cat food and being worried about her eating something that was clearly unfit for human consumption. I shook her awake gently, trying to think of how to convey the message without scolding her. Honey, it's time to wake up. She groaned and rubbed her eyes. Mm -hmm. I helped her get dressed while still unsure of what to say. So, did you see the fairy again? Yes, she replied. You know, honey, fairy food is very bad for humans. If she wants to share with you, you have to say no, okay? Rebecca giggled. <laughs> She's too hungry to share. For some reason, that made my chest tighten. Was I not feeding my daughter enough? Was her imaginary friend hungry because she was starving? Had she resorted to eating cat food out of pure desperation? Just to be on the safe side, I gave her an extra large breakfast and packed a few more snacks in her lunchbox that morning before sending her off to school. I spent the rest of the day failing to convince myself I wasn't a complete failure as a parent. When Rebecca came home, the extra snacks were still in her lunchbox unopened. Honey, why didn't you eat your rice treats? I asked, a bit of parental paranoia looming over me. I wasn't hungry, she replied casually. Well, thank goodness for that. At least I knew I wasn't trying to starve her, and she had access to snacks if she needed them. With my worries alleviated, I set another bowl of cat food in her room for the night. The next morning, I found the bowl emptier than my self-esteem as a parent. I felt immensely guilty about putting it there in the first place. I should have known Rebecca had a problem. I shouldn't have exposed her to the cat food a second time. Maybe it was a side effect of losing Murphy. Maybe she wanted to feel closer to her dead pet by eating its food. I, I don't know. I wasn't going to make the same mistake a third time, though. No more cat food for my daughter. And that's a sentence I never thought I'd say in my lifetime. 
It was Rebecca who woke me up the next morning. She was crying her eyes out, whining about her arm hurting. Barely unconscious, I turned on the light to look at her forearm. It looked nasty. The skin was irritated, red, and a small chunk near the middle was missing. She'd had a few eczema flare-ups before, but never this bad. I gave her arm a delicate kiss, crawled out of bed, and took her to the washroom so I could clean it up and apply a bit of soothing lotion to her skin. Oh, honey, you shouldn't scratch it. Make it worse, I whispered. Rebecca mumbled something through her sobs, but all I understood was the word fairy. What was that, Becca? I asked. The the fairy, she sniffled. (laughs) Was hungry. There she was again, talking about her imaginary friend's hunger. Her hunger, I thought. The fairy food isn't safe, honey, I said. But she's hungry, she replied. There's plenty of food in the fridge. She can't open the door. She got mad. She bit me, said Rebecca, pointing to her arm. I looked at it and said, Honey, that's just a rash. You scratched too hard. It was the fairy lady, she insisted. What was I supposed to do? Ruin her fantasy by telling her fairies weren't real, or try to steer her imagination back on the right track? I chose the latter. Fairies don't bite, I replied. Hungry fairies bite, she insisted. I sighed, trying my best to hide my annoyance. She was just a kid, just trying to make sense of the loss of a beloved pet. Okay. Well, tonight, if she tries to bite you, just... Hit her with your pillow, okay? Okay. I thought I'd done the right thing, that I'd said the right things, and that I'd heard the last of her fairy friend's escapades. I was wrong. It was in the middle of the night, probably around two in the morning, when I heard Rebecca howling like a banshee. My instincts were to run out of bed, grab a baseball bat, and protect her from whatever had caused her to scream. By the time I reached her room and flicked the lights on, Rebecca was pushing the closet door shut, her arms tucked behind a pillow. I got the fairy! She's in the closet! I was going to schedule an emergency counseling session for her in the morning, knowing it was all in her head, but... Then I heard something. A loud bang against the other side of the closet door. Goosebumps lined my arms instantly and my grip tightened around the baseball bat. An animal must have gotten in somehow. Maybe when I opened the windows to air the room out after I painted it. Rebecca must have heard it skittering around at night and thought it was a fairy. After letting it sink in, I hurried to slide a dresser in front of the doors to keep them shut, breathing heavily as I did. Bangs continued to emerge from the other side. Rebecca was shaking, her hands holding the pillow so tightly that her knuckles had become white. In the commotion, I hadn't noticed that she was bleeding. Another little chunk of flesh was missing, this time from her left shoulder. I took her in my arms and tried to reassure her, all the while trying to reassure myself. I'd been so stupid to think she'd imagine the fairy. I should have known better. As soon as she calmed down enough, I drove her to the emergency room to get a rabies shot. 
Doctors asked what had bitten her, but all I could tell them was that it was stuck in my closet and I'd get an exterminator to take care of it. By the time we got home, the sun was up. I had had the foresight to shut her bedroom door before we left, so even if the critter got loose, it wouldn't find its way into the main part of the house. Still, we avoided the corridor leading up to her room. I sat my daughter down in front of the TV and searched through the digital yellow pages for the number of an animal pest control agent. And they sent someone immediately. Before long, I heard a knock on the door. Heard you got yourself a pest, said the animal control agent, a middle-aged man with a fair share of scratches on his skin. I nodded. It's in my daughter's room. Let old Joel take care of that for you, he said, then looked at Rebecca. It might not be best to do this in front of the kid. It gets a little messy sometimes. We try to be humane, but when they attack people, well, he paused, considering his words carefully. Sometimes we have to K-I-L-L them, he whispered. I'll take her to the movies. Is that okay? Perfect. I should be out of here in about an hour. I'll send the bill in the mail, he replied. I bowed my head. Thank you so much. Now don't worry about it. It's my job. A cheerful and colorful cinematic distraction later, we returned home. To my surprise, the pest controller's van was still parked in the driveway. Maybe the infestation was worse than I thought. I walked my daughter around back and told her to play in the yard while I spoke to the nice man inside. She smiled and took a seat at the swings, letting herself go like a metronome. I went inside. Joe? I called out. No reply. There was an intangible tension in the air. The silence worried me. Nervously, I made my way to Rebecca's bedroom. The door was half open, but something felt wrong. Every fiber of my body warned me to turn tail and run, but I pushed the door open and stepped inside. Joe, the animal control officer, was resting in a puddle of blood. His throat had been torn open. Blood vessels and viscera hung from the jagged wound as though they'd been plucked out of him like weeds out of the ground. The shock kept me from screaming, kept me from moving. I just stood there, stunned, as my heart raced against my chest and my mind went blank. What kind of animal could have done this? I felt like I was going to pass out, but then I felt something soothing. A breeze. A soothing, humid breeze coming from the other side of the room. I turned my head and saw that the fairy door had been left wide open. Had it been open this whole time? I was drawn to it, like a moth to the flame. A man was dead in my daughter's room, and I was focused on a silly little door. I knelt down in front of it and peered inside. I didn't see the wall. On the other side was an unearthly landscape that looked somehow both foreign and familiar. A forest of unrecognizable trees, the kind you find in the pages of a storybook. They were majestic, tall, full of lush foliage and bloomed flowers as large as cars. Strings of puffy dandelion-like fuzz swam through the air, breaking apart whenever they made contact with a branch. 
The sight captivated me. And then through this heavy foliage, I heard a devious little giggle that echoed throughout. Then another giggle, this time from the left, and then another, louder and louder, closer and closer. They were coming. I jumped back and slammed the door shut, chest thumping hard. The sound stopped, and I felt a brief moment of relief until I saw the bloody handprint on the fairy door's knob. Four fingers and a thumb, just like a human's, only much smaller. I looked at Joe. The door shook violently. In a daze, I pressed my ear to it. Rustling leaves, the gentle trickle of water, birds chirping in laughter. Incessant laughter. I ripped the fairy door from the wall and threw it into my bag. Garden, I thought. I'd been told these doors had to be put in gardens, and that's where I was going to take it. Before I left, I called 911 for Joe. They determined that he'd been mauled by the animal he'd been tasked to capture and took him away while I distracted my daughter. As soon as the police were done with their report, I buckled my daughter into the car and drove to the botanical garden across town. That's where the fairy door is now, hidden behind a tiny thorn bush. I'm praying that whatever came in through the fairy door also left that way. I'm praying that it's still not in the house. You know what's funny? I still can't tell you what's wrong. I'm haunted. There's been a man standing on the sidewalk opposite our house staring right at us for a year and a half. And I can't physically think or speak the words that might describe what's wrong with that. I'm screaming soundlessly at the edges of my thoughts, but I'm also drinking coffee at the kitchen sink to wake up for my day. And one of my roommates zombie shuffles by in his pajamas, opens the fridge, and stares at the food inside. He makes no motion for a long moment, an action which any outside observer would attribute to the lack of bacon in the bottom right drawer, but he and I both know what his heavy pause is really about. I'm looking out the window, and he's looking at an empty fridge, but a question is passing between us. I answer in the affirmative by doing nothing. Yes, he's still there. If the man staring back at me from the sidewalk opposite our house was not still there, I would say something. I would say anything, meaningful at all. It's getting colder out, I say casually, looking up at the sky. My roommate grunts. It's just a comment about the weather, and yet the most we can possibly bring ourselves to speak on the subject. It means everything. Last winter, the cold never came. It was the warmest on record for our area, and the man on the sidewalk did not die. Last winter, we were rooting for him to survive. Sometimes, I wonder whether he truly did. Coffee's done, so I have to move on. I'm uncomfortable, but I have to walk past his hate-filled gaze to get to my car because my roommates have the garage this month. Jacket on, laptop bag slung over my shoulder, no more delays. Inside my own front door, I take a deep breath. Alright, here we go. I only have to cut across our lawn, but the restrained dash fills me with tension every single morning as the bitter air strikes my face. 
I look anywhere except the man across the street. The street is silent and empty. No cars park here, no children play here, and the lawns are wild. The neighbors seized upon any and every excuse to move away, and pretty soon we became the only populated house left. You'd think our rent would go down, but no, of course not. The worst part of the 15-second walk to my car is that it brings me closer to him. I can feel the heat of his hatred on my skin, and it flares as I grow nearer. Pretending to be at ease, I look at the ground, then at my car door, and slip in with a sigh of relief. Except I'm not relieved. I'm ever so slightly crying. I'm ostensibly an adult, but I'm sitting in my car and staring forward with misty eyes for no reason that I can put into words. The heat comes through the window. Shutting the door didn't help. Sometimes the pressure inside my chest reaches a point where it feels on the edge of bursting. I'm about to scream and I'm about to say the words, but I can't. My skin prickles painfully as the fire instead backdrafts through my arteries. As I force myself to turn the car on and drive away, I struggle with it yet again during my daily commute. He's just a man. His name is Russ. He's absurd, really. He's wearing a tattered blue bathrobe that's been shredded by the elements over the past year and a half. His hair is wild. His skin is sun-torched toward leather. Living on worms and birds that stray too close, and the insects that call his body home, he's basically a crazy homeless man. Except he's not homeless. Beyond the six-foot-tall grass, that's his house behind him, still technically, because nobody will buy it. That's the one horrific question that everyone else usually asks just before they stop caring and leave. Why doesn't he just go inside? But I refuse to ask that question. If it were that simple, if it were that simple, don't you think he'd... Don't you think we would... Stopped at a red light, I gestured forward in frustration with both hands, trying to grasp the rest to make a point to nobody, but the words refused to form together. They slipped past one another, slamming into the sides of my brain instead of linking together to make it an idea. To my right, a frazzled and dirty old woman stands on the corner. I look her way and she looks back at me, somewhat surprised that I'm acknowledging her. Is she like Russ also? No. She takes a few steps forward, about to ask for money, and I jump the gun a little bit on the red light to avoid an awkward situation I've caused. The funny thing is, I see it coming, but I'm more afraid of one danger than the other, and I misjudge the gap. A dark blue truck slams into the passenger side of my car. I walked the rest of the way to work, blinking and looking at my hands virtually the entire time. Something was different, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I kept touching the upper left corner of my forehead too, but the phantom warmth there never turned out to be blood. I wasn't injured as far as I could tell. Nobody noticed anything wrong, either as I entered my office 20 minutes later and sat at my computer. Nobody had noticed my absence, really. 
before the situation with Russ, I'd spent every morning in terror of being late, but that just seemed small and absurd now. The overhead lights flickered and I briefly glanced up. Hey man, the coworker to my right said, swiveling my way and leaning in with the conspiratorial eyes. Did you hear the building across the street burn down last night? Momentarily surprised, I swiveled my own chair to glance out the window behind us, but there was nothing to see. Perhaps he'd been to another building. I swung back to ask him to clarify, but he was already leaning toward the guy to his right to spread the word, and it didn't really matter anyway. I got up to go get a coffee from the break room, and the nice secretary lady a few cubicles down from mine asked as I passed, "'Saw you walk up to the building. Everything all right?' Car accident, I said with a grimace, making sure to keep moving so she didn't ask any further details. She didn't try. In the break room, that one older guy from sales stood about a foot from the wall, facing it. Reflexively, I said, uh, but he didn't acknowledge me. Okay, maybe he was thinking about something. Sliding past, I poured some coffee into a mug and headed for the door, except... At the exit, where once I would have bolted to avoid someone acting strangely, I turned and watched him instead. Was he like Russ? This haunting wasn't going to end on its own. I understood that now. Maybe this older guy from sales was just tuned out. Maybe he was listening to something. Focusing on my ears, I could suddenly hear the droning constant sigh of the building's air conditioner. It had always been there, but I blocked it out for exactly that reason. If you'd asked me before that moment, I would not have been able to tell you that the air condition was audible in my building. It sort of clanked by way of turning off. Wow, it was actually rather loud now that I was aware of it, making me wonder how I'd never noticed it before. And the older guy from sales turned and walked away without even acknowledging me. Okay. I looked to my right and saw that a guy in a cubicle several rows down had stopped his work to watch me and wonder what I was doing. He turned away in a hurry and finally stopped standing in the break room door. Something was wrong. As I sat at my computer that morning, I could finally face that first Vegas level of fact. Something was wrong. That barest acknowledgement had been eluding me for the last year and a half, and my heart began to race as I repeated that realization to myself over and over. It was like a birthday, a promotion, and Christmas all in one. Something was wrong. Elated and terrified energy coursed under my ribcage as my haunting finally took a step forward, no matter how slight a step it might have actually been. The feeling had always been there, agonizing and terrifying everyone in my neighborhood, but now I could finally consciously think to myself that something was wrong. But what? Swiveling this way and that ever so casually, I peered around my office. I saw my boss two aisles over and I got up to talk to him about my car. He glanced my way and definitely saw me, but he quickly acted as if someone had called him over from a perpendicular direction around the corner and he hurried away. His body language made it clear that 
the nice secretary lady had told him about my accident, and he didn't want to endure the awkwardness of having to reject my request for an advance on my paycheck to get my car fixed. The air conditioner clunked loudly off, and it occurred to me that I hadn't noticed it coming back on. Something was wrong. That older guy from sales had been staring at a wall, but all these people were just staring at their desktops. Because of the principle of mutually assured destruction, I'd always avoided looking at their monitors so they would never look at mine. But now, I dared the boundary of rude by surreptitiously peeking over half a dozen shoulders. Facebook, Facebook, Reddit, Minesweeper, Facebook, blank Word document. I touched the warmth at the upper left corner of my head, but there was nothing there. Agitated by something that couldn't be expressed in words, I began to wander toward the front door. On the way, I heard someone to my right say to a co-worker, Hey, did you hear that building across the street burned down last night? The co-worker's response, Wow, that's crazy. Was anyone hurt? I narrowed my eyes and picked up the pace, pushing right through the front doors into the open winter air without a jacket. To the left, normal. To the right, normal. Passing the sleek red Lamborghini my boss always drove, I took a walk around the office, and then I crossed the street and circled the block under a gray sky. I found no trace of the supposed burned-down building. People had definitely been telling each other a building had burned down, so where was it? It seemed ridiculous that people would be telling each other that without anyone ever actually checking outside to see if it was true. On the way home, walking without a jacket and yet oddly warm, I listened to the conversation of other pedestrians instead of politely ignoring them like normal. At a corner, while waiting to cross, one woman said to another, Did you know there's a second moon we've never seen? Her friend replied, Wait, seriously? Where? It's been on the other side this whole time. If you were in New Zealand, well, that's the moon they see, and they've never seen our moon. That's incredible. To this, I accidentally said out loud, What the fuck is happening? Both women glared at me, held themselves a little closer, and then hurried away. It then occurred to me that the three of us had been waiting for crossing signals in an intersection with no traffic. I decided to throw caution to the wind and cross the road without waiting, but I still felt a little weird about it. There were no cars. I made it safely, but there were no cars. As I carried on, the woman continued to glance warily at me from a distance while they waited dutifully for the next crossing signal. I couldn't help but wonder if something was wrong with my head. If there was something wrong with my thoughts, then maybe, just maybe, I could finally do something about my haunting. As much as it dominated that particular spot on the sidewalk... The specter in my neighborhood had also had a home in the impossibility of words to convey its nature. If my words weren't working right, then perhaps new avenues were open. I probably needed to go to the hospital for a concussion or something, but before I did that, I had to reach Russ. Uber. It was genius. Using my phone, I summoned an Uber. No sense in walking in the cold, right? In three minutes flat, I was hopping into the back of a seat of an unfamiliar car driven by a stranger who had surely been vetted by somebody somewhere. 
On any other day, I would have hoped for silence, but today I welcomed it when the driver began talking. Something about this was crucial for my coming interaction with Russ. You a local? He asked. Nope. I lied for some reason, going with it after a brief pause because I couldn't see myself talking my way out of it. I continued. Just landed. I'm in from... New Zealand. Oh, that's cool, man. How do you like our moon compared to yours? I just sat and stared at the back of his head for a moment. He glanced at me in the rearview mirror. Finally, I said, Yours is bigger, I guess. And that's what they say. He touched the radio, rolling it louder. You mind? I shook my head, then tapped the warmth above my left eye, still finding no blood. The radio began radiating complete nonsense. The words were there, yes, but they formed either no coherent ideas or ideas that were the opposite of basic reality. I watched as the taxi driver nodded along with what amounted to the ravings of a madman. I finally remembered. The left frontal cortex behind the left eye. That's where language is processed. Had I somehow damaged my brocus area? I knew all about it because of an episode of a science fiction show that dealt with a virus that damaged the Broca's area. Was that right? No, wait. If that was damaged, I should have been able to understand language, but not speak it. Instead, I seemed to be afflicted the other way around. The driver pulled up to the end of my street. Sorry, man. This is as far as I go. I understood. Nobody ever went down our street anymore. I hadn't even brought my laptop bag. It felt weird to walk down my street without my jacket or laptop bag. It hadn't been weird before, but now Russ was staring at me from the other end of the block and he was probably wondering what I was doing home so early and without my things. Stopping firmly on the pavement about five feet away from him, I finally looked him in the eye for the first time in a year. He was still there. Underneath all the wild hair, ragged blue tatters, and burnt skin, his eyes still held essence. He had, in fact, survived the last winter. I glanced down. His toes were black. He coughed gruffly and then said, What do you want, asshole? His hatred for us had kept him going all this time. I'd always known that, and I'd always known that if we, too, had moved away, he would have been left here completely alone, and then, truly, he would have died. The neighborhood, as it had existed back then, had tried so many things, but nothing had worked. But now, I could actually admit that there was something wrong. Russ, why don't you come to our house for a little bit? I don't want to. He lied, pained all the more for his inability to talk about it. I tried again. You want to go for a walk? It's too cold. I'd rather stay here. He lied again, his expression agonized. I moved forward, intent on pushing him from the spot. About two feet away, I changed my mind. After all, he'd been there so long it would probably damage him somehow to move him. Stepping back to five feet away, I clenched my fist. Nothing had changed. He glared even more intensely at me. 
Stop it. I moved forward, intent on pulling him from his spot. About two feet away, I changed my mind. What would our neighborhood be without him standing there? Without him there, everything would change, and who knew what things would look like? All sorts of horrible people might move into these empty houses. Standing back to five feet away, I grimaced as and turned back to face him. He was furious now. What the hell's wrong with you? Stop! I still felt oddly warm. I was still full of pressure. I wanted to explode, to scream, to lay down in a ball and cry. Everything was off. The world was insane, and I couldn't put this goddamn problem into words. So I offered the only true step I'd made. For the first time, somebody asked him, Russ, is something wrong? He stared at me again, but not with the hate that had so colored our last year. What? How did you... He opened his mouth wider for a moment, but no sounds followed. He then said, Ask me again. I was glad to ask again. Russ, is something wrong? His jaw shuddered as he struggled. I nodded and made an encouraging motion with my hands. He made the first syllable and then caught on triumphantly to a successful tactic. Letting that syllable go, he made a separate one. S. He deflated like a balloon after releasing those two syllables, as if the effort had cost him all his willpower for a moment. Barely audible, he shook, laughing and crying with alternating intensity. I tried to approach, but I changed my mind about two feet away again. No, it was only about a foot and a half away this time. You know what's funny? I can't tell you what's wrong. I'm haunted. There's been a man standing on the sidewalk opposite our house staring right at us for a year and a half, and I can't physically think or speak the words that might describe what's wrong with that. I'm also drinking coffee at the kitchen sink to wake up for my day. One of my roommates, zombie, shuffles by his pajamas, opens the fridge and stares at the food inside. He makes no motion for a long moment, an action which any outside observer would attribute to the lack of sausage in the bottom left drawer, but he and I both know what his heavy pause is really about. I'm looking out the window, and he's looking at the empty fridge, but a question is passing between us. To answer that question, I wave. From across the street, Russ waves back. I look over at my roommate's. He frowns angrily at me, because I know the Earth only has one moon, but he goes about his business for lack of an ability to sway me otherwise. There's only one moon in the sky, and I'm going to save Russ someday, and there is nothing anyone can do to stop me.